I'm so excited to be just standing in here and doing this tonight and just experiencing our time together, not having any idea what this will look like tomorrow or the next week or the month after that, but knowing God's doing something. And I love that about our Father. He especially loves to take old things and restore them like the farmhouse we're sitting in right now. Some of you know this, many of you don't, that this house was built in 1903 and when Rod and Barb got a hold of it, it didn't look like it looks right now. And I've only heard a couple of things, but you know, pulling up carpet and finding sand underneath should give you kind of a picture of the state of things. And yet, it became a house of restoration. Now what's amazing to me about that, if I can just brag on what I heard Saturday just for a minute, God took a home that needed restoring, brought a family into it to restore it, and since it's been restored, has used this place as a place of restoration for life. That's what God does. And you need to talk to Rod and Barb to hear some of the stories, but this is a place where restoration takes place. That's what God does. He loves to take the old things and restore them and make them new. Now, we're beginning a journey of sorts, and uh, we know how it's going to end. We know exactly how it's going to end. You can click to the end of your Bibles and find that out. We just don't know what's going to happen between now and then. The great thing is that with God in the driver's seat, we know it's going to be exciting. Now, since this is our first Bible study together, I think it's the best place to start is, is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I want to read through, and if you just kind of follow along in your Bibles, I'm going to read through the whole first chapter so we hear it in the flow and in the context that, that it was written, and then we'll go back and pick apart at least a couple of verses tonight. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. And then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the night from the day. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. And he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And just let me stop for a moment. Can you get the picture of what's going on right now, of what God is doing, of the excitement that must have been going on in heaven while creation was happening? We, we sometimes read scripture and we read it so dull. And God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And it was good. I think God was absolutely jumping for joy. I think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, surrounded by the angels, were going, birds, check it out, woo, and having a great time. This is an exciting passage of scripture. That God's seeing the waters teem. I mean, not just a few fish, teeming, fish everywhere, out of control, wild, amazing stuff. Verse 21, God created the great sea monsters. Now what fun is that? And every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. 
And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And now I imagine a heavenly drum roll. Starting quiet, getting louder, as the tension builds, and as the angels all gathered around are waiting, what is God going to do next? That only God knew. Amazing. Let's make man in our image. According to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth. And every and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. Then God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The account of creation, a marvelous, amazing, spectacular event, has started the ball rolling in history. Now we're going to talk about a lot of things this week and next week in this chapter. In fact, um, I ended up splitting up my notes so that I'm not trying to cover it all tonight. We're only going to cover two verses. There's so much to cover just in the first two. And you'll see what I mean. And by the way, I, I don't know if everybody got, if you want to ever take notes, we'll always try to provide pads of paper and pencils and stuff because there's an awful lot of information that just gets missed. And especially when you look in our school systems today and see how, how our children and our teenagers are taught about where they come from. There are so many lies that are out there that the Bible very clearly points out and disproves. We're going to see those things as we look at this over the next couple of weeks. But let's start right now with verse 1. In the beginning. Now Genesis comes from the Greek word which means beginning, but it's derived from the original Hebrew word which is Bereshith. Bereshit means in the beginning, and it's an appropriate title, because this whole book is the book of beginnings. We see in Genesis the beginning of created life, the beginning of earth and the creatures, as we just read, the beginning of the planets themselves, the sun, moon, stars, and everything in all the universe. Genesis is the book of beginnings of man and woman, of relationships, of marriage, of families and peoples and cultures and history. We also see in Genesis, and we will in a few weeks anyway, see the beginning of sin as it enters the world and begins to destroy and mess up some very good things that God created. As much as it deals with the beginning of life, Genesis also deals with the beginning of death coming as a result of sin. We'll talk about that. It's also, interestingly, the beginning of the oldest surviving people group in all history. Now, you don't get to this people group until chapter 12. Chapter 12, where we will run into a guy named Abram, whose name ultimately was changed to Abraham. And the Hebrew people who were named because Abram spent time in Hebron, and so the Hebrew people. We'll find out about him in chapter 12, and I think we should be there easily in a week or two. <laughs> we also see in the story of Abraham the covenant that God made with the Hebrew people and the connection that he made with them and how God used his relationship with the Hebrew people not only to bless them, but to bless the entire earth. How his connection with Abraham and the Jewish people following became a way for people to see how God related to a people and to a person. And we talked about this a few weeks back at the Dalton Community Church, but it's in relationships that we get to know people. And one of the things that's unique about what's going on right here is that we have, right, we're right on the front edge of some new relationships. We don't really know each other that well. It's in these relationships that we'll really find out, okay, are these people legitimate or are they just off their rockers? You know? And trust me, we're all looking at each other the same way. But it's in relationship that you find out where someone's really coming from. What, what's their integrity? What are their intentions? What are their attitudes? Are they of God or not? You discover those things in relationships. Unfortunately, sometimes, too deep into relationships, you discover those things. But God in his wisdom with the Hebrew people, with the Jews said, I want the whole world to see me, 
to see my heart laid open. I want the world to see what makes me happy, what breaks my heart. And the best way to do that is in relationships. And so we will see that in God's relationship with Abraham going on further on. We also know that through the Hebrew people, there is an important link for the salvation of all of mankind, and that's Jesus Christ, tracing all the way back to Abraham and then even further back to the thirdborn son of Adam and Eve, who got the title of firstborn, and that's Seth. Cain and Abel both lost that title. In fact, interestingly enough, in Genesis, it's the book of beginnings, and it gives the beginning of every single thing on the face of the earth, on, throughout the universe, everything but one. There is one thing that it doesn't deal with, and that's the beginning of God. Because God has no beginning. God has always been. Now, now <laughs> this is one of those mind-boggling things that, you know, as human beings, we can almost picture eternity out ahead of us. You know, from where I am right now, I can picture myself living forever. In fact, I plan to. You know, that's a good thought. And I, and I can, forever seems like a long time, but, but time just going on and on and on out that direction, that's cool. What freaks me out is thinking about forever in the opposite direction. Like a God who has never had a birth. Like he's just always been here. Well, when did he get here? Well, he's always been here. Well, how long has he been here? Yes. You know, I, I, it's, that's hard to comprehend. And yet God has no beginning. In fact, in this first verse, it just tells us, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. This Hebrew word, Bereshith, which means in the beginning, also means head, or first of all. So you could read this, first of all, God. God, in writing this autobiography, which is truly what the Bible is, an autobiography of God, a love letter autobiography of God to people, starts off by just assuming his existence. He doesn't defend it. God doesn't try to prove it. He just is. And I guess that makes sense. If you think about an author of an autobiography, rarely does the author try to prove that they're actually alive. Because the autobiography is the proof. It stands as a testimony to the author who wrote it in the first place. You know, it's interesting. Um, about a year or so ago, a guy by the name of Jack Miles wrote a book called God a Biography. And the whole point of his book was to look at God from a literary perspective and to see him as the protagonist in a story. And as he writes, you begin to read this book, God of Biography, and I'm not recommending it because it starts off really good but ends up really bad. Because what he ends up saying is that God, through time, begins to develop, to figure himself out, to realize that he has likes and dislikes, and that God literally grows his personality over time, which is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is, was, and always has been who he is. He is consistently the great I am. That's God. He didn't discover himself. Now, you may say that the Bible was written by people. You know, I mean, it's nice to say it's an autobiography, but wasn't it written by people over time? And the answer is, yeah, actually the Bible was penned by some 40 different authors or writers. And it contains a library of 66 books composed over 1,600 years of time. It was written in three different languages across three different continents. But you know what? If we sat here tonight and tried to write a story together, we couldn't do it. Not with the kind of clarity and coherency and completeness that we have in Scripture. The Bible is amazing and a testimony to itself in that it so intricately connects that from one verse to another, from Revelation back to Genesis to Ezekiel to Matthew, all over the place, this book is a deeply connected book that no individual person could write much less 40 different people across 1,600 years. A testimony of the legitimacy of the Bible. Well, I love that Genesis begins without an explanation of God because only through time and relationship, as I said before, would God become known to people. And that's been God's intention throughout history, that we would come to know Him across time. In the beginning, God created now the word created, and I know what you're thinking right now, you're thinking if we do this all the way through the Bible, it's going to take us about 40 years. But in the beginning God created, this is the Hebrew word bara, this is a very important word to know as you study Genesis, especially chapter 1. Bara, B-A-R-A. -A. The word bara simply means to make something out of nothing. Okay, when I sit down with my children and make Play-Doh, and create things out of Play-Doh, that is not bara. I'm creating something out of something. I have a product, I begin to use and work, and I make something out of it. That's not bara. Bara would be if I sat down with my children and said, hey, watch this. Boom, and created something. 
I haven't done that yet. I'm working on it. But that's what God does in creation. In the beginning, God created. God borrowed, if you will, something out of nothing. Now, evolutionists have a big problem with this. In fact, one of the largest problems that evolutionists have never been able to get over is this, is this issue of bara, something out of nothing. For if you get in a conversation with someone who believes in the theory of evolution, what they will take you back is that they'll go all the way back from man back to the first little dot that ran into the second little dot and created a big bang and caused things to happen. The problem is where did the dots come from? Where did the first little beings come from? What started it? Where did it all begin? That's a question that evolution cannot answer. Evolution can answer, or try to answer, at least a, a species over time changing and, and flowing. And you're going to see there are a bunch of holes in the theory simply from studying Genesis 1. And we won't get to all of them tonight, but there is so much that evolution just cannot answer that God answers very clearly in his word. But evolutionists have this problem with first cause. There is what's called theistic evolution. Now, theistic evolution has kind of been Christian's reactionary response to the evolutionary theory. And it's sad to me. But theistic evolution basically says, okay, God did start it all. God started the ball rolling. He began from the very beginning. He kicked it into place. But then he stepped back and let it all take its course. Now, why come up with a theory like that? It's in reaction to the theory of evolution. And it came about with, with believers saying, wow, what if the earth really is 4.7 billion years old? Then how can we explain creation? How can we explain what the Bible says? We've got to find a way to make it work. We're going to have to say that each day of creation was instead of just one day, maybe each day was like a billion years. That, that would help, you know, because evolution needs time to work. And so theistic evolution is a reactionary theory that looks at the cause or the creation of the world and tries to make it all fit. There are some problems with this. Number one is that God did create the world in six solar days. And we'll talk about that probably more next week. God created in six solar days. Theistic evolution requires long days for the evolutionary process to happen. God created in six. And the Bible is very clear about that. Secondly, though, again, when God created... When God created, he borrowed. He didn't borrow, he borrowed. He created something from nothing. And as a matter of fact, you see that three times in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 1, God created the heavens and earth, bara. In verse 21, God created, again the word bara, every living creature that moves. In other words, verse 21 is telling us very clearly, God did not create the creatures from the plants. He didn't mold creatures out of something already there. He created something out of nothing when he created the creatures. He borrowed. Verse 21. Verse 27, the third time we see it, God created, bara man in his own image. Man was not taken from animals, as Genesis tells us. Man was created something out of nothing. And so right here, God is telling us clearly, look, if you want to believe in, in theistic evolution or in an evolutionary process where man comes from animals and just kind of flowed out of that, let me make it clear to you. When I created man, I borrowed. I created something out of nothing. I didn't borrow creating something out of something. I borrowed creating something out of nothing. Isaiah, by the way, tells us that God's going to do it again. He hasn't done it. Since the day, sixth day of creation, God has not created something out of nothing in our world but he will again. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 tells us, Behold, I create a new heaven and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Is there anything you want to forget in your life? Things that you've done, relationships done, sour, people that you've hurt, behavior that you just, man, you just wish you could take it back and start over? One of the most awesome things about the restoration that happens in following Jesus is that that is promised. The former things will not be remembered. As we head into eternity with Jesus, we will not remember the ugly stuff. We're not going to be aware of it. All we're going to be aware of is the new heaven and the new earth. And it's going to blow our minds. So without attempting to explain himself, the author is the creator, and the book itself references its author many times over. For example, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, says the following, the heavens are the telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words, but their voice, their voice, their line, their sound, it says, has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. The psalmist is saying, man, you can hear, you can see, you can experience the power of God's creation and the power of God himself simply in the things that he has made. It's awesome. Psalmist says, look, just open your eyes. Is there a God or is there not a God? Open your eyes and you will see him. Flip in your Bibles real quickly to the book of Proverbs. Just keep a finger in Genesis chapter 1. Go over to Proverbs chapter 8. I want to read something to you. It was very interesting here. Proverbs chapter 8. Man, the kids are being awesome tonight. Hey, kids. Proverbs 8. Starting in verse 22. I'm just going to read this to you. Uh, follow along. And see if you can figure out who it is that's speaking here. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Well, he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now who is this? Who is this that was with God in the beginning, that was having his delight in, in all of creation? Any guesses? Jesus? Some have said Jesus. There's only one problem with it being Jesus, and that's that the indication here is that this person or this persona was brought forth. Jesus wasn't brought forth. Jesus has always been, for Jesus is God. Jesus came as God in the flesh, but He is God. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And that all things were created through Jesus. So, it's not Jesus. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. Now remember the writer of Proverbs is very big into wisdom. And so here he takes wisdom and he actually gives wisdom kind of a personality and says, I was there, as if wisdom is talking, with God in the beginning. That God created with incredible wisdom. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 12 tells us, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. So in the beginning God created the Bible begins and carries on throughout by assuming God and by expressing that God created. And we'll do the same thing as we study. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go back to Genesis 1.1. We just got through the first verse. I'm very excited about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, listen closely to this. If you have a problem with this first verse of the Bible, you're going to have a problem with the whole book. If you can't get by this verse, if you can't accept what this verse is saying, you're not going to be able to handle anything else in Scripture because this is foundational. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 14, verse 1 tells us, The fool has said in his heart, There's no God. They are corrupt and, have they, and they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The psalmist goes on, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And I love the fact that all of you are here tonight because you are seeking after God. It is a blessing to know that God, when He looks down from heaven, and even in this very moment, is looking after those who are seeking after Him. That's awesome. But the psalmist goes on and said, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Last week... I was tucking my daughter into bed, and we were talking, and, and oftentimes when Hannah and I are talking at, at bedtime, she loves, that's her time to bring up conversation. I think she knows that if she brings up conversation, she gets to stay up later. But this was one of those times where, as we were talking, it was very clear that there was something really bothering her. And she said, Dad, can I, can I tell you something? And I said, yeah, hon, what's the problem? She said, well, some boys said some things on the bus today that made me very uncomfortable. Now, 
my fatherly radar went straight up. Okay? And she began to tell me how these two boys, fifth, fifth and sixth grade, right Hannah, fifth, sixth? Both sixth grade. Sixth graders, okay, began using sexual words and talking in language that was totally inappropriate. And it, it was blowing my mind that the words that she was sharing with me that they said that I won't share with you right now, as sixth graders, it was, it was unbelievable to me. And I was so angry. And I felt right at that moment, I thought, okay, it's time to go have a little prayer session with my friends Smith and, Wes Smith and Wesson, you know, and, and, and go deal with these boys. I was ready to take them on. I was, I was livid that these guys would talk to my daughter in such a way. Now, at the same time, I was very proud of Hannah for bringing it up and saying this made me uncomfortable. And I told her, that's the right attitude. That's the right thing. You always come talk to your dad. But I, want, I tell you that because there's something they said that blew my mind. Hannah said, because one of the boys started saying, you know, that you, you should have sex outside of marriage. That would be a good thing to do. You know, that everybody does nowadays, and that's just kind of the way it is. And Hannah says, very rightly, the Bible tells you to save it until you're married. I'm like, yes, my daughter. Tell them. The Bible says wait. And so these boys, one of them responded, well, you know what? The Bible was written like, I don't know, like 2,000 years ago, okay? And it doesn't mean anything anymore. And he said these words, I kid you not, the rules have changed. Really? I'm not sure if the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah would think that the rules have changed. I don't know that the rules have changed when you see what sin does in our world today. When you see how it takes people's lives apart. Even us, if we were to take a few minutes and just be martyrs here tonight and talk about the darkness in our lives, the sin, the things that we have done wrong and what's come out of those things, I don't think there's a one among us who would say, yeah, I sinned here and the result was just great. I wish I could do it again. I love the sin in my life because it always makes me feel really good and it always ends up down the road doing good things for me. That's not the case. The rules have not changed. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what's the problem, Paul? He goes on and he says, that which is known about God is evident to them. The stuff that's known about God, it's absolutely clear. God made it evident to them. Romans 1.20, he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. What, through consistent Bible teaching? Well, no, that's not what he says. Well, through evangelists going door to door telling people about God? No, that's not what he says. He says, they have been understood through what He has made. That there's not a human being walking the face of the planet that can't believe in God if they would just open their eyes and look around. We live, folks, in one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. Now, Cheryl and I have had opportunity to live in several different places doing ministry at different churches. I've never been anywhere that's more beautiful than the San Juan Islands. I love living here. How could you live here, look out across the water, look out across the islands, and not believe in God? Amazing. You know what's at the real heart of the creation-evolution debate? It's not scientific evidence. It's rebellion. The real issue is rebellion. It's the attitude that says, you know what, God, I don't believe in you, so why don't you just go away and leave me alone? Think about that. The atheist who tells God, I don't believe in you. Does anybody else find that a little strange, a little odd, that you're telling someone that you don't believe in to go away? But that's the attitude. It's foolish. It's blind. But it's the choice that God gives us to make. Well, but, but what about science? I mean, science, doesn't that disprove the Bible? The truth is, and you will see this more clearly next week, scientific research and study does nothing but confirm what Scripture has already taught us. It's absolutely amazing. By the way, one of the most famous scientists ever to live is a man by the name of Sir Isaac Newton. We've all heard of Sir Isaac Newton. He tells a story, or a story is told about him that, that I want to share with you real quickly. And I got this from creationevidence.org. So you might want to make a note of that. It's a good place to go and, and look, at, look up some stuff. But the story goes that Sir Isaac Newton was an, had a, an accomplished artist to create a small-scale model of the solar system. He had it built and placed on a table in his house. And once it was finished, it was installed there, and you could turn a crank, and all of the planets actually rotated. It was uh, apparently a marvelous piece of work. 
Now one day an atheist scientist friend of his came by for a visit and began to examine this solar system model with admiration for the high quality of workmanship. And the atheist friend said, my, this is an exquisite thing. Who made it? Paying little attention to him, Sir Isaac Newton said, nobody. And the guy said, wait a minute, evidently you didn't hear my question. I asked, who made this? And Newton, enjoying himself immensely, still replied in a more serious note, nobody. What you see there just happened all by itself. Well, his visitor said, she must think I'm a fool. Come on, of course somebody made it, and he's a genius. Then I would like to know who he is. And Isaac Newton said, the thing is that this is but a puny imitation of a much grander system whose laws you know. And yet I'm not able to convince you that this is mere toy is without a designer and maker. But you profess to believe that the great original from which this little design is taken has come into being without either a designer or a maker. Now you tell me, what sort of reasoning do you reach such an incongruous conclusion? How can you look at a little toy that is but an example of the big picture and be amazed that this little toy doesn't have a maker but the big picture doesn't have a maker? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible always holds up in the spotlight of science. Let me give you a couple examples. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Isaiah 40, 22 tells us, it is he who sits above the circle, the circle of the earth. Now understand when that was written, that people who lived on the earth believed that the earth was flat. But the word tells us that, that God saw the earth as a circle. He sits above the circle of the earth, not the flat board of the earth. Scripture beats science to the punch. It always does. Job chapter 26 verse 7 tells us that he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Oh, come on. Hangs the earth on nothing? You're telling me that the, the, the globe, that the earth, or back in their day, that this flat thing that we live on is, is floating out in the middle of nowhere? That's crazy. That's lunacy. And as a matter of fact, scholars in India believe that the world was both flat and that the world was held up on the backs of giant elephants. That's science. The Greeks believed that Atlas had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And people in the South Seas, and I love this one, they believe that the earth rested on the backs of giant tortoises. These were the scientists of their day. And at the same time, the Bible was saying, no, the Lord sits above the circle of the earth, and the earth hangs in the middle of nothing, which we know to be true. Science never beats scripture. It always plays the game of catch-up, because scripture nails it. What about today? Well, today I can tell you that the most substantive scientific knowledge points to three things that you should be aware of. Number one, an immediate and ordered beginning of all things. Not chaos. What scientists today have discovered through all the studies and all the ge geologic you know, studies, everything, they look back and they say, no, everything points to an immediate and ordered beginning of things. Not an explosive, chaotic mess. Secondly, scientific knowledge points to a worldwide cataclysmic event possibly involving water. We call it the flood. But science says that something big happened that didn't just happen in Mesopotamia or one part of the world, but the whole world was massively impacted by some kind of cataclysmic event, probably with water. And number three, science today, listen to this, points to an earth that is somewhere between five and 10,000 years old, not five and 10,000 billion years old. Now, evolutionists today try to claim and say that the world is 4.7 billion years old. That's, that's the most recent claim. Now, if you go back 10 years, evolutionists were saying about 2.9 billion years old. So in the last 10 years, we've added a couple billion years to the Earth's history in evolution. But scientific evidence and research points to a young Earth. We'll see more of that next week. So let me just say this. If you struggle with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to struggle with the whole book. Now I want to do one more verse, so hang with me just a minute longer here. Verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now this is important. In fact, this is fascinating to me. The Hebrew construction of this second verse, of this sentence, is critical to understanding what's going on in creation. And it's something that a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, miss. We, we just never see this. 
We couldn't have seen it coming. There are two words that I want you to uh, focus on here. One is, it says the earth was. The word was there is the Hebrew word haya, which is H-A-Y-A-H. And that word is also translated, not only was, but also can be translated became. Now, if you look at the translation became, the two verses read like this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth became formless and void. Well, that's a different picture. The God created, and then the earth became formless and void. Well, what is formless and void? What, what does that mean? That's the Hebrew phrase tohu va bohu. And I think it's a great phrase, especially for students to use at school. Heather, you need to use this at school. When you want to say something's really messed up, just say, hey, it's tohu va bohu. And your friends will go, you are psycho va psycho. Okay? Good. Well, write it down and take it with you. Tohu va bohu, it means a desolate waste, a vain and messed up thing. That the world was created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the earth became a messed up thing. Now, I have never heard that before I started studying this. That's bizarre. Did God create a waste? Did God start out with the world and go, in the beginning God created, boom, oh, it's kind of messy, kind of void, kind of formless. Better do something about that. You know what's interesting? 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us that God is not a God of confusion. Furthermore, Isaiah 55.11 tells us God is talking about His Word and He says, My Word goes forth from my mouth and does not return to me void. So if God spoke the world into existence and suddenly it became void, we have a contradiction. But it gets worse. There's even more of a contradiction. Isaiah 45.18 tells us the following. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not, did not create it a waste place or tohu vabohu. He did not create it tohu vabohu. He, he didn't create it messed up. But Genesis chapter 2 or chapter 1 verse 2 says he made it, it was messed up. That it was formless and void. And Isaiah comes along and says no, it wasn't formless and void. So was Isaiah right or was the writer of Genesis right? Do we have a contradiction in scripture? The answer is no, we don't. But we do have insight into something that may have happened here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became tohu vabohu, a messed up, desolate place. The indication here, folks, and we can only surmise because I don't think any of us were actually there. So we can only kind of make a guess here. But the indication is that something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. It became a messed up place. What happened? I'm going to give you a surmise. I'm going to give you my opinion. Okay, This is not like scriptural truth. This is Rick's idea. And I share it with a lot of other people. And if you have a different opinion, that's okay. You can be wrong and, and I'll still love you. We'll get along fine. Isaiah chapter 14. I'm kidding. And Ezekiel chapter 28 both describe something. They describe a heavenly rebellion. They describe a person by the name of Lucifer who was the highest of angels, who was a, a, a guardian cherub. He, he had absolutely beautiful, the, the Bible describes him as having these gorgeous stones all over his body, that he was in and of himself music. And that he decided that he wanted to place himself higher than God. Now we don't have time to go into it tonight, but it's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and you can check it out. But what, tell, what it tells us in the Bible is that something happened, and there was a rebellion, and Satan was kicked out of heaven. Now you and I know that at least by chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, that Satan was wandering around on earth, that he was in the garden. How did he get there? When did he get there? I submit to you that he got there right after verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. That as God created the heavens and the earth, he, he made it, everything was going well, and rebellion happened. Satan cast out, and earth became, because Satan landed there with, as the Bible also indicates in Revelation, a third of his angels, that the world became a messed up and desolate thing. That Satan messed it up. This would explain a lot for us, folks. It would explain that God did not initially create the world without form and void, a messed up thing, thing, but he did create it as a beautiful thing. It got messed up. 
which would mean, and I know this may be a stretch, it may be different than anything you've heard, but it means that the six days of creation are actually the six days of recreation except for the specific things that we see God making something out of nothing that God recreated that God restored the heavens and the earth it might explain also why there was darkness all over the place for John tells us that God is a God of light and why would God create darkness and it tells us the spirit was moving on the face of the deep actually brooding as if at the point of the second verse God's Holy Spirit is moving along the earth and looking around and seeing what's going on and thinking about it and processing and deciding what he's going to do with this vain and messed up thing it also allows for Satan to be on the earth to tempt Adam and Eve so someone might ask well so are you saying that the earth is older than 6,000 or so years from creation day one till now no I'm not because for one thing time wasn't even created until the first day there was no time so anything that happened prior to the first day of creation would not be reflected in the earth's history because there was no time until God created evening and morning one day what I am saying here is that we have no idea how far back verse 1 actually happened. We really don't know. We can only find that out from God himself and you know, someday soon we'll know that. But beginning with verse 3, it's entirely likely that we may be reading the story account, as I said, of recreation. Remember where we started tonight. That God loves to do new things. That in the same way that this home that we're sitting here in here right now was restored, God loves to take messed up things and restore them. This is what God does and it's what he does best. And if nothing else, listen, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is a picture of your life and mine. It's a picture of how God created us in his image to be like God, to be with God, to have fellowship with God. But something happened in our lives and we became tohu Babohu. We became messed up. Sin happened and took this beautiful gift of life that God created and flipped it and turned it upside down and put darkness into it and made it ugly. And so Jesus came along and changed everything. Flipped us back over. Cleaned us up. Washed us with his own blood and made us perfect in the eyes of the Father because God loves to take messed up things and make them beautiful 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says therefore if anyone is in Christ he's a new creature the old things have passed away behold the new things the new things have come God is doing a new thing we're a part of a new thing God loves to do new things he loves to take the messes and the mistakes and failures of our lives, clean them out, and restore us. Now as we go further into studying the Bible, I want to give me just one more minute here to share something with you. People ask about why should I believe the Genesis account of creation? Why in fact should I believe the Old Testament at all? I mean, I understand maybe there are some proofs out there, but, but give me what, what's the real reason, the single reason I should believe? And I'll give you the one-word one answer for why you should believe the Old Testament account of creation and everything else that happened. The answer is Jesus. You should believe the Old Testament account of things because of Jesus. He validates the Old Testament record. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Some scribes and Pharisees are arguing with Jesus, and they say, Hey, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. And Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, but no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, you guys remember Jonah? <laughs> that, that Sunday school kind of ridiculous story about the guy who went overboard and was swallowed by a fish. Come on. Three days in the belly of the fish and he didn't die or at least get digested or something? Come on, that's ridiculous. That's one of those stories in the Bible. It's just got to be some kind of parable or something. It didn't really happen, did it? Well, Jesus believed it did. Jesus said, the sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus compared his own crucifixion, death, resurrection 
To the story of Jonah, and in so doing, absolutely and completely validates the story of Jonah and the big fish. Do I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale and burped up on the ground three days later? Yeah. Why? Because Jesus believed it. Because he believed it. Because he taught it as truth. Matthew 19, chapter 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus again, and they're testing him. They're saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered them, he said... Haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now we'll see that more clearly next week, or week after next, as we get into chapter 2. That man and woman become one flesh. But in this statement, Jesus validates the relationship of Adam and Eve. The creation of Adam and, and Eve together, that they were made for each other. You really believe that, that God created Adam and Eve and stuck them in that garden? Yeah. Why? Because Jesus did. Because he believed it. Matthew chapter 24, last example, verse 37, tells us Jesus is speaking. He says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. You remember Noah? Built an ark, put two of every animal in it. Every animal? Come on! I mean, I get the Bill Cosby routine. That's funny, but this is ridiculous. A guy built a big boat. It rained, flooded the world, and he had all the animals. Who cleaned up that mess? Anyway, that's, that's just a little hard to believe. The coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days until the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And folks, there is coming a day where Jesus will call his family home. Where in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says, will be gone. And people will be at that point left on the earth looking around just like in the days of Noah going, What happened? This is legitimate? There really is a flood as the waters are rising around him. You believe that stuff? Yeah, I do. Why? Because Jesus believed it. Big deal. So Jesus believed it. I know a lot of people who believe a lot of weird things. Well, the truth is, folks, Jesus claimed to be God. And if Jesus is God, Jesus was there. Jesus saw the flood. He was there. Jesus saw Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, the Bible tells us that by him and through him all things were created. So he created Adam and Eve. He was there. When Jonah got swallowed by the fish, Jesus was there. He knew it. He saw it. I believe these things because Jesus said they happened. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And listen to this, apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is why the question that Jesus asked at Caesarea Philippi is the most important question you or I could ever answer. He was with His apostles, they were hanging out, and He asked the question. They've been kind of talking amongst themselves, and He said, Hey, guys, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, Lord, some people think that you're John the Baptist, or some say Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus turned and looked at them and asked the most potent question in Scripture, who do you say that I am? It's the question he asked each one of us tonight. Who do you say that I am? Josh, who do you say that I am? Jeff, who do you say that I am? Not me, you guys you know, you know who I am. Who do you say that Jesus is? Folks, bottom line is this. If Jesus isn't God, the origin of the earth doesn't matter. If Jesus isn't God, believe whatever you want because it makes no difference. But, Jesus said, I am the Father, John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. I'm God. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 14. Paul said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain, and the last 55 minutes of your life has been in vain. A waste of your time. What are we doing here if Christ hasn't been raised, if Jesus isn't who he said he was? It's a waste. But guess what? Paul goes on and says, Now Christ has been raised 
from the dead. He is who he said he was. He is our God. And because he is our God, not only can we believe these things, but we ourselves can experience restoration. We ourselves can be made new in the same way that God loves to make all things new. I'll finish with this. A guy by the name of Gail Irwin, who is an excellent speaker, communicator, writer, was in Australia with a group of kids, a group of seminary students, biblically trained students, and he was sitting at a counter at a restaurant. And as they were eating their food, he began to hear the music and realized it was Christian music that was playing. And he was like, this is great. And he calls the waitress over and says, hey, did you know that, that, this, is, that this is Christian music playing? said, are you a Christian? And she said, well, no. And she listened. She goes, that's Christian music? And he goes, yeah. said, hey, go get your manager. So the waitress disappears and comes back with the manager. And he says, did you know that, that this is Christian music playing? And the manager goes, huh? It is? Really? He listened for a minute and goes, well, I'll be. I guess it is. And so Gail Irwin says, well, are you a Christian? And he goes, no, no, no. You know what? I don't know. No. What about the dinosaurs? What about the dinosaurs? I mean, you Christian people, you don't have an answer for the dinosaur thing. Meanwhile, the seminary students who have been studying this stuff are getting really excited. And they start to answer. And Gail Irwin, as he tells the story, said he's kicking them under the table saying, shh, be quiet. And he, and he says, you know, sir, I don't know about the dinosaurs. But I do know about Jesus. They kind of put him off for a minute. And the man said, well, well, well what about evolution? I mean, come on, you got to give some answers about evolution. So the seminary students are starting to get excited to give answer again. He's kicking them under the table. And he says, you know what? I don't know much about evolution. But I do know about Jesus. But what about this? What about that? What about the other? What about Jesus? You know, a lot of us as believers have trouble talking about Jesus and our faith because we're afraid of the questions that might come up. What about evolution? If you haven't studied it, what about the dinosaurs? What about all these unknowns, the, people are, the detours that people are going to try to give you when you just talk about Jesus? Well, the easy answer is, just talk about Jesus. I don't have the answer for all those other things. What I do have is a knowledge of a God who loved me so much he restored my life. Change me. You talk about Jesus and what he's done for you, and you let God take care of the rest. Always, 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 whether you're in Genesis, Leviticus, Revelation, John, wherever you are, always take the discussion back to Jesus. Why? Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for Him. Jesus, our Creator.